you would uh, open your Bibles to the uh, book of Haggai. Haggai is the third to last book of the Old Testament. Uh, one of the so-called minor prophets. Uh, hope you realize they're not called minor because of their content, uh, but because of uh, the briefness of the, the space they take up on the page. But obviously uh, not because its message is minor. So Haggai, we'll read chapter one together. That'll be our text this morning. Hear the word of God. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above with you, uh, above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Let's pray. Father, this is your word, and we are your people. We ask now that you would feed us from your word for the glory of the name of Jesus. Amen. I want you to uh, imagine yourself uh, at a wedding, new bride and groom, all aglow, uh, everything's going well, uh, all the family's there, and plenty of visitors, and everyone's having a good time. They uh, stand at the cake and cut it. And you can see uh, the joy on their faces. But then imagine this situation. Imagine one of the uh, members of the happy couple says to the other, can I just 
can I take you to this corner over here and, and have a quick word? Um, I'm going to have to head out in just a second. Um, I have this other thing that I have to do today. And um, in fact, if you could take out your phone and get your calendar up, I wanted to go over a few dates. Um, really, I have to tell you, uh, this year is pretty booked up for me. It's pretty busy. And I have a few times, uh, Thanksgiving, I have a little time on Easter and Columbus Day that we can have some time together. And in fact, um, in fact, I know we were planning on having this apartment together. It turns out I'm just going to need to keep my apartment and be there uh, this coming year. Because really, I have a lot going on. I have a lot of goals, and this is a big year for me. So uh, imagine that situation. Obviously, we would say uh, the other, uh, other partner would be uh, kind of dumbstruck and not really knowing what to say. Uh, didn't we go over this in premarital counseling of what marriage is all about? There's a certain oneness, a certain overlap, a joining of our lives, of being together, of our goals that we are to now share and walk together. We don't lead uh, parallel lives with, with no intersection. That's not what the marriage covenant is all about. Well, here in, in Haggai, there's really a similar uh, situation between the Lord and his covenant people, where they were supposed to be walking together step by step, joining together, having shared goals and a shared purpose. And there is a really a serious violation of his people of not walking with him. And so the question I think before us in the text is just like these people here. Uh, we're not really that different, are we? What if we found ourselves realizing that our own purposes and our own goals and our own lives had very little intersection with our covenant God, that we really weren't walking with him the way that we thought we were? So I think that's the question before us in this text. I'd like to look at this text under four, uh, four main headings. The first uh, would be the situation, and then we'll look at the heart of the problem. God's call to repentance, and then finally, the response of the people. So first, the situation. Look at verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. And then he goes on to, to give the message. So the... The timing of this, uh, Darius was the king of Persia. This was about the year 520. Now, that's important, and it gives the year uh, for a very specific reason. We need to know uh, that about 18 years before, the people had come out of exile. They had been in Babylon. Well, Babylon was conquered by Persia, and they had come back about 18 years before under the reign of King Cyrus. He had allowed them to return, allowed them to rebuild the temple. And as Alan read earlier, when they got back, they even started on it. But now it had stopped in the face of opposition. And they had let the work of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, sit there unfinished in ruins for about 18 years. Now, the neglect, read verse, look at verse two. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Notice the neglect that the people uh, that's called to attention by the Lord. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So imagine the situation in the face of this opposition. And I don't know about you when when things are difficult, when I face a problem, my own sinful tendency 
is to take my eyes off of the Lord. And what is typically revealed in my own life is is how weak my faith can be. And I take my eyes off of the Lord and I put it upon my own circumstances, my own situation. And I focus on that and I can tend to uh, lose focus on what the Lord has called me to do and what he's called me to be in walking with him. So that is exactly the situation. In the face of this opposition, they have uh, began to neglect what the Lord has told them to do. They become indifferent. And then that indifference is actually, it turns out, the Lord has said to them, this is not just indifference toward me. You're actually, because of your indifference, opposing my purposes for you, my people, and for the world. And so God's people were at a crossroads. They were at a crossroads. They could either continue with the Lord and repent or go their own way and basically have this parallel life that was not walking on the path with the Lord their God. Notice in verse 1 also, the word that Haggai gives comes to who specifically? It comes to Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel, the governor, and the high priest, uh, Joshua. So especially the leadership is addressed here. And so I would ask all of you, some of you are leaders. Uh, All of us are leaders in some sense. Some of you are actually leaders and officers in this church. And it is our responsibility uh, to examine and evaluate our own lives first, but also our church and say, are we walking in fidelity with the Lord and asking hard questions? Are our purposes exactly in step with the purposes and priorities of the Lord? Because it's easy as sinful human beings to offer excuses. Um, that's what they had done in verse two. They were saying it's it's not time. Now's not the right the right time to build the house of the Lord. Well, obviously, that's that's an excuse that the Lord is not really buying into. The Lord sees right through that. And I think it's also noteworthy here to, to realize that that is our selfish tendency from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. What were we all doing when we sinned? Offering excuses, putting blame, coming up with reasons not to obey, not to walk with the Lord. So if I know that's my impulse, that that's uh, just uh, part of being a sinful human being, I know that when I have any tinge of conviction about an issue, the proper response is never to offer an excuse. The proper response is always prayer and seeking the Lord and speaking with friends who I trust to hold me accountable and say, I I feel convicted about this. I might I don't even know what to do. I don't even know how to make this right. I don't know how to change. Would you pray with me about this and go to the Lord, go to his word? That's always the proper response. It's never to offer an excuse. And so this is a sober word at the beginning of the book, a sober word, because it It should help us to realize, you know, we can actually convince ourselves. We can have ourselves fully convinced we're on the right track when, in fact, we're off the off the beaten path. Um, I'm reminded of the man, one of the men that God used to raise up the modern missionary movement. Some of you have heard of William Carey. Do you know that when he began to speak out and say, we have been given a task by our Lord? to spread the gospel to all nations. And I just have to say, I don't think we're doing a very good job of it. We need to evaluate this. We're out of step with the Lord and his purposes. There was a man who stood up and said, young man, do you know that if the Lord wanted to save those people, he could do it without you? And this is not really our job. 
Now, that man was a faithful uh, Christian in a sense that he loved the Lord. He was walking with the Lord, but he did not even realize how out of step he was with the central plan and purposes of God for the world. And that can be true of you and I as well. We can put spiritual blinders on. So that's the situation. What about the heart of the problem? Look at verse three. Here comes the prophetic rebuke. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. The Lord says this will not do. And we usually take obviously rebukes have a a very negative sense, don't they? But I want you to reevaluate that for just a second. Of course, there's a negative uh, connotation to what's being said. But think of it this way. This is actually the grace of God writ in large letters. The word of the Lord comes to his people. Now, why is that full of grace? Because he says, I love you too much to let you continue off of the path of walking with me. This path is going to lead you to danger and destruction and consequences that I don't want you to have to face. I love you so much and I created you to walk in covenant with me. I've now redeemed you to walk in covenant with me. And the fundamental problem with uh, your stance right now is that you're forsaking your relationship with me. You need to turn back and come back to me. And so this is the grace of God on display that the word of the Lord, the prophet who spoke for the Lord, came and said, you need to turn around and come back to me. And what is the content of that call? In verse four, he says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? While this house lies in ruins. And here is really the heart of the issue. You yourselves. Did you notice how that was emphasized? Who are the people concerned with? Where are their thoughts? Where are their goals? Where are their priorities? Well, they're they're focused on themselves. The fundamental problem here is me. I want to live my life. I don't know about you, but I have, as I study the scripture, the more and more I see what is the fundamental problem with the world? It's me. The problem is I am a sinful person and I often turn to my own goals and I turn away from what the Lord has clearly instructed us. And so God says, I love you too much to let your life be about you. I made you for myself and I'm restoring you to a proper relationship with me, your creator, your redeemer, to center your life around me. This is good for you. It's the best thing for you when I am at the center of your life. Now, in a sense here, the, the people of Israel were repeating similar mistakes in their history. If you would just turn over for a moment to the book of First Kings, chapter six. We see this uh, clearly in the life of Solomon. And even at the beginning of his life, what we think of is the good period uh, when Solomon was faithful to the Lord. And he was in a large measure Uh, in chapter six of first Kings toward the end, as he's building the temple, carrying out the work of the Lord uh, faithfully. We do see, though, some warning signs that would cause havoc and wreak havoc and bear terrible consequences later in his life. So first Kings six verses twenty seven. We'll just read a few verses and I want you to notice how long does Solomon build spend building the temple? 
And then how long does he spend building his own palace? Let's read first Kings six thirty seven. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts, according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. Now, the, house that, the houses that they were building, uh, notice the, the difference between Solomon's uh, priorities. Even here, obviously, the, the narrator puts those two together for us to notice. Something's already manifesting itself. Solomon's beginning to shift his focus not on the not from the Lord's purposes to where to his own his own life, the things of his own concern. And obviously that would go on to wreak destruction and, and devastation later in his life as he turned away from the Lord. Now, the, the paneled houses that they were building were not exactly Solomon's uh, palace, but they were more toward and shall we say an HDTV like obsession kind of mindset. It was more toward that. Their thoughts, their time, their energy, their money was being more and more poured into the things of their own daily concern, less into the things of the Lord. And now is there notice they're they're very busy. That's definitely not the condemnation that these folks aren't. These are they're not lazy. They're very busy. But what are they busy with? Now, the things they're busy with, is there anything wrong with being concerned with your your house, your family, your business? Of course not. But what's the what's the point? What's the key is that the Lord's work must come above and before and at the center and all of those other things must flow out of it for them to be honoring to the Lord, for us to be faithful. And so if we do not give much thought to the Lord's work, if we don't put that at the center of it before we realize it, as we see in the life of Solomon, you know what? We end up not caring that much about the spread of God's kingdom, about the growth of God's kingdom. So that's the heart of the problem. Now about God's call to repentance. There, there are three, three calls that he goes on to make from starting in verse 5. The first call is the call to consider. He says in verse 5, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. In other words, examine your life. Take some time and thought and think about your life. And what it says about where your goals and priorities are. Is my life really about the Lord and his concerns and his purposes at its heart? Do I do I fit the Lord into my life or is he at the center of my life? Is it really about him or is it about me? Is that a reality? Now, as sinners, we know that's always a struggle we're going to have. And so if that's the case, how do we consider well our lives and continually repent. Well, I think we obviously uh, can't turn to the prophet of the day and ask him to speak directly and specifically into our lives. There are no more prophets today, are there? Yet we have the word of God before us, don't we? And so as you read the word of God, is one of your prayers accompanying your reading, Lord, open my eyes, show me my sinful self, show me where I focus everything on me and not on you and change me, Lord Jesus. Do I also uh, not only pray those prayers as I read, but when I read, do I take the time afterward to give thought and meditation 
to what I've read, to consider, to answer this command faithfully, to consider and think about my life. And also, I would say the Bible speaks a lot about the value of the multitude of counselors and friends that can sharpen us and hold us accountable. And even as Proverbs says, wound us with the truth that we might uh, grow in faithfulness to the Lord. And even together as a church, are we having conversations about not just as individuals are we being faithful, but where as a church do we have blind spots? Where do we need to sit uh, around and we need to sit down and discuss where are we missing things? Where are we not in line with the purposes of God? So that first call is to consider. The second call is the call to repent and actually rebuild the temple. This is in verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood. Get your hands dirty. Um, Take action and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Now, the temple was not this was not just a neglect to put up a building. The temple was so much more in the life of God's covenant people. Uh, This was central to God's purposes for his people. What was the temple all about? The temple was about the dwelling of the covenant God with the covenant people to be with them, to walk together so that God's glory would be acknowledged as they walked faithfully with him and displayed his commandments in their lives. The glory of God would be put on display for all to see. And the putting up of the temple would do so much more than even that. It would pave the way for priests in the years to come. Priests like Ezra who would come along. And it was a center of teaching the law of the Lord and of discipling the people and of showing them the gracious character of the Lord and the sacrifices that we serve a God who forgives sin. The blood of atonement is a reality for God's people. We can have our sins forgiven. That's part of being God's people. And all of the temple was also about the Great Commission. Did you know the Great Commission didn't start in the New Testament? It goes all the way back into the Old Testament. The temple was all about the Great Commission because the temple was Israel was to reach the nations through the rule of the Davidic king. And the temple was the billboard uh, to show the character of God so that the nations would come. Don't turn there, but I'm just going to read a few verses from First Kings, a few chapters, uh, one chapter later than we read, when Solomon is dedicating the temple. Now notice, this is a kind of a paradigm verse for what the temple is all about. At the dedication, this is what Solomon says in part. He says about the temple, Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. They'll hear of the greatness of God and they'll come to the temple. And he goes on. He says, when he comes and prays toward this house here in heaven, your dwelling place and do to according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. And so the very heart of the temple was bearing witness to all the nations. This is the true God, not the temples you worship in and the gods you follow. Those are false gods. Come and worship the true God. So it was about the mission of God's people. The temple was at the heart of that. Now, there is something new in the Great Commission when Jesus gives that command. The new part is the reversal of the flow. The nations in the Old Testament were to come right to the temple. Well, now what does Jesus do? 
He says, now you take this, the word of God and you go and you make disciples of all nations because now you are the temple. My presence goes with you. I am with you. Take my word and bear witness to all nations. And he reverses that flow. Now, what is at stake? Ultimately, here in Haggai, verse eight says it very clearly. Build this house. At the end of the verse, he says that I may be glorified. We sung as our opening hymn, all people that on earth do dwell. That is who we are. We long as God's people for all people on earth to praise the Lord. And we grieve that he is not honored by millions upon millions. And I want to start where God has put me to more and more be faithful to the call to give glory to the name of Jesus through the preaching of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel. So the second call is to repent and build the temple. The third is a warning call, and that's in verse uh, 6 and then 9 through 11. In 9 through 11, he says, look, you're, you're going on with your own life and your own priorities. Well, where is that getting you? Are you putting money in a bag with holes in it? That's not going to do you much good. In fact, he goes on to elaborate. I'm actually putting you under judgment. You're being cursed because you have forsaken what I've asked you to do. And you're living in idolatry, an idolatry of self. And he says, I am going to not bless all the work that you're putting in. You're working hard, but it's not getting you anywhere. It's the proverbial uh, hamster wheel situation. So he says, consider what's going on here. Without me to bless you, to provide, it's not going to go anywhere. Repent and return. I'm actually disciplining you, again, not to just punish you, The point is to reclaim you. I love you too much to let you continue on this destructive path. Take heed and obey this warning call. Now, what about the response of the people? Verse 12, we see the response. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord, their God had sent them and the people feared the Lord. You see the goodness of the Lord to bring bring discipline into our lives, to get our attention, because the response of the people is that they turn away to the safe path of obedience and walking with the Lord. We cannot Walk with the Lord apart from obedience. Now, it is, uh, we often say, and rightly so, of course, are we saved by our own works or by grace? Of course, we are saved by grace. And the covenant of God is all about his grace toward us as people. And he has brought us into relationship by grace. But we need to make a careful distinction. The covenant of the Lord is unconditional with respect to any merit in us. Is there any merit in us that deserves anything from him? No. It's only based on his grace, but his covenant is not conditional. It is not unconditional. It is conditional with respect to means and how we walk with him. We walk with him by faith and by obedience. That is a theme of scripture all the way through. And so to when we obey, what do we get? We get the Lord when we obedience is so good for us because we get More of the Lord, more of his blessing, more of him in our lives. 
Now they also, it says very clearly at the end there, they feared the Lord. Uh, I heard it said recently, a pretty well-known pastor said this, uh, if you have stood before the Lord and if you've never been afraid in the presence of the Lord, you're probably worshiping an idol. I think there's a lot of truth to that. But notice the response after they obey in verse 13. The message is full of grace. I am with you, says the Lord. And the same pastor said, but also if you have never stood before the Lord and felt dearly loved as his child, you're probably also worshiping an idol. So we have to hold those two things together. The importance of obedience. And that's how we walk with him. We walk with him by faith and by putting his truth into practice in our lives. But yet it's also his grace at work in our lives that we depend upon. And again, notice the role of leadership in verse 12 and verse 14. It was Joshua. It was Zerubbabel. It was the the priests and the elders of the people. And again, to all of us here at Old Peachtree, it is our job to ask these hard questions, especially and to give thought to these matters. Where are we out of line and where are we in line with the purposes of God, the spread of the gospel? At General Assembly this past week, one of the kind of founding fathers of the faith had a moment of exhortation for all of us. Uh, I don't know if it was impromptu or, or what, but he got up and exhorted all of us and said, we need to continue to preach the gospel. We are just not pressing ahead like we should with the message of the cross and of saving lost souls. And uh, I think all of us need to examine our hearts and take that advice to heart, especially us here as leaders. And notice verse 14, also part of the response, God's presence actually means something. Verse 14 says, And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and the high priest, the remnant of the people. Who is actually behind this movement? It's behind it all is the grace of the Lord, convicting and changing our hearts to push us toward obedience. And so... With any act of obedience that we have, we can only look back and say, Lord, ultimately, I have only you to thank. I know it was your grace, your work in my life that led me to this point to turn away and repent. And then in verse 15, we see that this uh, because the first day it was the first day of the month when the word first came in verse one. Now it's the 24th day. And that's pointed out again, the time frame. And you need to realize these are real people in a real time, in a real place, people just like you and me. And so from the first day to the 24th day, three and a half weeks, there is a remarkable change brought about by the grace of the Lord in the hearts of the people. So what about July 4th, 2010? What could happen in the next three and a half weeks by the grace of the Lord? Is there someone you need to go and reconcile a relationship with this in this church? Is there a a father among us who, you know what, realizes it's been several months since we've read the Bible together as a family, since we've prayed together, since we've prayed for our neighbors, for their salvation? By the 7th of July, by the 20th of July, could these things change by the grace of the Lord as we turn to him in repentance And I want to say this, at Mission Adventure Camp, the middle schoolers, we were all challenged 
to think of two people who did not know the Lord Jesus and to pray for them and to be committed to that even now at a young stage in life. And I think that is a good message for all of us. And so I would challenge you, if you're not praying for your neighbor or your coworker or your family member who does not know the Lord, could you say to the Lord, Lord, help me. I don't even know where to begin. I don't know the words to say, but Lord, help me pursue that. Help me to continue to pray. Help me to look for opportunities and so that we might say and hear on the 9th of July, some one of us went to their neighbor and knocked on the door and said, hey, I, I'm kind of embarrassed that I have never come over and spoken to you before. But here is some banana bread and I'm, you know, this is my name and I live right over here. And uh, if you can, uh, if I can help you in any way and serve you in any way, I'd love to get to know you. Uh, Lord, would you do that in our lives? Who knows what God is going to do in these next few weeks? So what what happened? What was the ultimate conclusion? Well, in Ezra, we realize uh, the people did finish the temple. They finished it. It took four and a half years, but they finished. And God moved his own purposes forward despite our weakness. Uh, and he uses us to do it. And he delights for us to take part in that. I want to close with a prayer by John Calvin, close in prayer with his prayer after he preached on this same passage. And I don't know if many of you know, but John Calvin was a devoted church planter, uh, overseeing efforts to plant churches all across Europe and even the world, sending missionaries to uh, Brazil. Thousands of missionaries were sent out of his church from Geneva, Switzerland, to preach the gospel, to spread the word, to build up the church. So let's close together with this prayer. Grant, almighty God, that as we must carry on a warfare in this world, and as it is your will to try us with many contests, O grant that we may never faint, however extreme may be the trials which we shall have to endure. And as you have favored us with so great an honor as to make us the framers and builders of your spiritual temple, May every one of us present and consecrate himself wholly to you. And inasmuch as each of us has received some peculiar gift, may we strive to employ it in the building, in building this temple, so that you may be worshipped among us perpetually. And especially may each of us offer himself wholly as a spiritual sacrifice to you until we shall at length be renewed in your image and be received into a full participation of that glory which has been attained for us by the blood of your one and only Son. Amen.